Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of this show, Sal Marinello, and this is the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. Episode 200 here on the network, so monumental episode. We have reached now 18,800 subscribers, so we're closing in on that 20,000. Hope to be there by, uh, let's give it a couple weeks. I think we can get up there by two weeks with the rate we're going. But Sal, welcome back to your show. I want to welcome you back before I address our audience here. Great great to be here and I'm glad I'm number 200. I was hoping when you mentioned what we were on last week that today would my show would be the 200th. So, oh yeah, you, you bumped right up there. That was uh that was great because you were one of the original guys on the show that helped get this thing started with our round table way back when, which we're going to get rolling with again soon. But uh yeah, I thought it was it was good to, to have you on for 200 here, especially with some great topics today that we're going to hit on. Baseball and, you know, and you know what, Dave, there's something we, we did have a little pre-show chat. Uh, there's something uh, I want to remember to talk about and um, and gear it towards the kids and parents who have, you know, who are involved in this whole idea of playing in college and just how circumstances can work out. I have a, a really great firsthand story that I think uh, anyone who has kids who play sports, even if they're not at the stage where you're thinking about their ability to play in college. It's just a great story. So whenever you want to fit that in, I'll add that to your already, I'm sure, extensive list of things to talk about today. Yeah, well, definitely. We'll we'll hit that right at the top so we don't forget. Uh, 18,800 subscribers I mentioned. Make sure you download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. The rate and review helps us battle the analytics of the podcast world just like we do with the baseball world. If you do that, we can keep providing you great content like Sal does here every week on his show. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher are the ways to stream us. You can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can get Coach Sal on Instagram. That's where he puts the vast majority of his content in addition to Substack. 72 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there. And I always read this, this disclaimer that our audience sent to me. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truths about baseball, about health, about life. Because as this program has no time for the comfortable lies, much like the other programs on our network. So with that, um, Sal, welcome back to your show. And let's, uh, I'll just throw the topics out, let you riff today, and then I'll, I'll chime in where needed. But uh, let's start with baseball world. You got DeGrom, who's out again for the season now. And then uh, Strasburg, two familiar faces on the DL. I'll let you kind of go off on those two. Well, the, the DeGrom, it's, a, it's really sad because having grown up in the era where I got to see the end seasons for some of the all-time greats, pitchers, the likes of which we'll never see again, like a Bob Gibson. Uh, I was fortunate enough to watch Tom Seaver in his prime, and I was talking about this with my buddy yesterday. We were kids, and you know, not every game was on TV back then, and, and it was a treat. And we were probably 12, even 10, 11 we played Little League together. We, we knew each other all through grammar school, junior high school, and up until this moment. We would call each other and remind each other when Tom Seaver was pitching. And even some of the other Mets, they had Kuzman at the time. And it really hadn't been a little bit with Clemens, even though it was obvious to me as an adult that Clemens was not natural when he was cleaning up the league at the end of his career or through that last portion of his career. There was really nothing like anything like those guys until DeGrom came along. And because he dominated, Good, Gooden had that, but again, Gooden was a, a season or two. But DeGrom was special. The unfortunate thing about Jacob's situation, and it's one of the things that's been ignored in this common, uh, I should say, in the Tommy John surgery becoming common, that that is not a bionic man fix that is giving you a robot arm. That is got that surgery, that tendon that they're putting in to replace your ligament has a shelf life or an arm life, if you want to call it that. And DeGrom had exhibited all the symptoms of it giving out over the past several seasons. I am just amazed that with what we know, with what the medical profession knows, with what our imaging is able to uncover, that the 
Rangers signed him for the money they signed him for. It, it's a matter of time for that Tommy John to go a second time, especially when the velocity is there for this kind of a pitcher. And that we always try to touch on accountability with this injury. And I know there's people accountable that are around him now, but I mean, how far back do you think this started, this abuse of his arm and to, to well, get to this point? I, I think once it, once they know it's going to go, they're trying to manage it. It's almost, it might not be an accurate analogy, but it's almost like if you have a car that is kind of a bomber and it's on its last legs, you're not going to go from, you know, you're not going to take your spring drip break trip. My, my friends in college, when I went to Lehigh in Pennsylvania, weren't taking the kid's car. That was the demo derby, you know, one step away from a demolition derby car. They weren't driving that car to Fort Lauderdale. They would take it into town to get a food run or a beer run. They weren't taking that car a great distance. And I think in a way, this is what happens with these guys when they know there's slight tears in that tendon. They know there's other of the telltale signs the lat strain, the shoulder strains, the forearm issues, which were unknown until the Tommy John surgery came about. So I think they're never going to say that publicly. I think they had internal, I would be surprised if there weren't internal discussions that knew this was going to eventually happen and felt that they'd manage it. And if he had to get it, hopefully they'd still get some years of out of him on the set on the other side. Yeah, they certainly pay. They didn't pay pay like he was a broken down old car or a jalopy. They paid Lamborghini money for him, and it's it's unfortunate for him because we've seen him when he's healthy and he's as dominant a pitcher as we've seen in a long time. But who knows what he'll he would have become? Is it? I mean, the, to think that we're already banking on Tommy John surgery one, Tommy John surgery two, that certainly has got to be the wrong approach, right? Yes, and I think. I think we talked about this on the show with the guys way back. You always The story that stuck with me was CeCe Sabathia had talked about learning how to pitch when he lost something from his arm. And it, my thought is that's a shame because with the gifts those guys had, why didn't they learn how to pitch first? We yeah, talked about this, and it's not to be the old man that says, oh, well, back in my day, but literally back when we watched those guys like Seaver and Gibson, they were throwing 95 in the eighth, and those weren't even guns that are as accurate as today. They were throwing low 90s, mid 90s, sometimes seventh, eighth inning. You'd hear, you know, I could still hear Bob Murphy talking about he really reached back for that one. Well, it's because they weren't throwing 95 from the first inning. How many games, Dave, did we, I don't know if you watched them. I know, I can't tell you how many games we watched where DeGrom was throwing upper 90s and was touching 100, 101. Oh, yeah. And, and, and they were celebrating it. We were seeing it with these young guys. So the, the pit, the pitching arm only has so many pitches in it, and for every freak like Nolan Ryan, who it still got him, but he was throwing ninety five until the end. Those guys changed speeds. They threw breaking balls. They did other things. I think they took care of their bodies in a simpler and better way, which is the other X factor we haven't really addressed. I I can't speak to Degrom's workout regimen. Um, I'll be the first to tell you it's an educated guess, but looking at him physically, he did not look like a weight room monster. His delivery did not appear to have the signatures to me as someone who looks at movement over the pitching mechanics, but is familiar enough with both. He threw very free and loose. Let's compare him to Syndergaard, who was another guy who was always muscling the ball to the plate, had all the same latch strains, heavy lifting looks like he's a muscle freak and he has had those shoulder problems. So, you know, sometimes it's just bad luck. I don't know the circumstances under which DeGrom had his first Tommy John because he started as an infielder. So I I can't speak to that. But, sure. but he was it's, a solid shortstop. Yeah. It's, so it's, but the, the lesson is here, it's going to happen. And when these guys are always chasing velocity, it's going to happen sooner and that much more often. Yeah, and that's the key thing that chasing velocity. The body's not meant to max out, you know, eighty times in a row or ever many pitches they're throwing. Correct. In the pitching day. Then Strasburg, I don't know if you've had much time to, to look at him. I know we had an issue or we like I'm on the team. There was an issue uh years back when they shut him down right before the playoff run. And and people just banged on that. Uh they they thought he had thrown just enough innings, just enough pitches, 
he did get his World Series, so that was kind of what most people were upset about, uh, that, that he didn't get a chance to help the Nationals win when he did get one. But now he's shut down again on a long DL stint. He's got that weird little uh, elbows to the sky, the chicken wing delivery, which is that's when you talk about telltale signs, that looks uncomfortable for guys to do. Well, he had that, that year where they held him at the end of the year. Again, to me, that's poor management because my thought is, if you think you have a team to make a run, why wouldn't you hold him out at the beginning of the season where you could say, we'd rather have him at the end when we need him instead of putting him in there at the beginning? In the in the scheme of things, if you're going to bet one way or the other, I would bet that way. I remember saying that at the time. I believe Kevin and I had discussions about it. I may have even written about it for one of my blogs way back when that happened. But to me, that was just lack of foresight. And a simple, you know, that was close. What do you, what's this phrase? Closing the the barn doors after the horses have run away. So they're yeah. trying to, they're, they're, they, that to me was like a desperation move. They were scrambling to try to figure out how to get the most out of them. And again, what you're, you're a baseball guy more than I am, but I could tell you, I'd rather have my guys, regardless of the sport, if he had a limited amount of time to be productive, I'd rather have him at the end of the game, the end of the season, rather than at the beginning. And then his that surgery, if anyone had a chance or has a chance to read that, there was an article in the Washington Post about Strasburg. He that the thoracic outlet syndrome surgery is butchery. They take out ribs. They took out two muscles in his neck that that to me, that's I, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine going through that and and thinking somehow that's going to make anything better. What is that now? Thoracic? Well, thoracic outlet syndrome, it's this thing that's come about in the era of these hard throwers where basically what happens is the artery that runs off into the, that area into your arm gets pinched by the repetitive motion of the pitching motion. And in in the shoulder rib joint area, there's this complex where the, the nerves and the ribs and the muscles all are closely in I don't know if they're actually intertwined, but for lack of a more exact term, they're in such close proximity to each other. It sounds from the explanations I've read, they're trying to open up that area. To me, it just sounds Dr. Frankenstein-ish. Yeah. And, and obviously in his, he's in such, he's in pain and discomfort all the time. This is not just, he can't throw properly or he's lost his velocity from the article. He's always in discomfort, which has to be, pure hell because that nerve pain, there's not a lot of things you could do to uh, alleviate it. Yeah. And he's a, he's a big guy as well. Most of these pitchers now are long athletic guys. So there's a lot of moving parts, which means you have to be a little bit more uh, loose and free when you throw. And I think this max velocity stuff just contorts guys' bodies. In addition to putting undue stress on real, you look at the rotators, a tiny little muscle and you see the, right, you talk about the telltale signs, lat discomfort, bicep discomfort, forearm discomfort. That's all those those red flags to say we're about to hit something really bad soon. So, Well, and then add to it, Dave, again, the X factors, X factors are what are they doing off the field? And I'll say this again, the argument can be made for these guys to never touch a weight in a traditional weight room setting again. The... Status quo, which defends that, has no defense because all of these pitchers are doing those workouts and it's not helping and things are getting worse. So when is somebody that's in charge and has actual ability to change how things are done, when is somebody going to say, we are going to start treating our pitchers differently? We're going to start looking at what was done before these weight room maniacs took over and we started paying five and six hundred thousand dollars to these college strength coaches and these professional strength coaches. When is a GM or a player personnel guy going to say enough is enough? It's not working. We have to change it. That and the pitching all year round. I have in New Jersey. The high school season is ending. Some of the kids that I know that had, they're they're done because we're down to like the last. A handful of teams in the state playoffs are already clubbing and are already going to tournaments and are already pitching and will pitch all through the summer. They'll take a couple of weeks or a month off and then they'll start back up in September. 
Those things have to change. Yeah, I agree. So you've hit on some common themes and you talk to, if you hear Jim Cott speak or Will George or, or Mark Wiley, they talk about that rhythm and timing, rhythm and timing. They also talk about the importance of rest. Um, and there's that balance of, you know, throwing when guys are there, they're not doing base enough baseball activities and it gets to your point always. There's no, there's no substitute for baseball activities to get you stronger. It's uh, these guys that are supplementing it in the weight room to try to, I guess, get bigger, faster, stronger in another way. So, um, you know what I think a problem is, and this isn't to get too deep into the whole philosophical realm and talking about that. I think it's the inaccurate, actual, uh, an inaccurate interpretation of the actual phrase. People who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. But when you're not aware of history, especially in baseball, I think we have a generation that thinks no one's ever done what they're doing and doesn't think anyone's done it before. And I think a good indication of that is how many people would tell you that for as much as I love him, DeGrom is an all-time great. DeGrom's not even close to an all-time great. He has had some dominant seasons, but that does not equate. You have to go back and look at some of the things some of the pitchers in prior generations did to understand how bad this problem is. And Again, my buddy and I, who from the time we were 13 and 14 and able to stay out late and have some time socially, and we would go through the baseball almanac, we still do things like that. Go back and look at some of the things some of these pitchers did. And for guys that aren't familiar and girls and fans of baseball aren't familiar, go back and look at Warren Spahn. Warren Spahn really, despite all of the other Grover Cleveland Alexander and Cy Young and the guys who won ridiculous amounts of games, in my opinion, Spawn should be the guy that we look at because he has 363 wins. He did it post-World War II. He pitched into the 60s. At age 40, he led the league in wins, 21. He was 21 and 13. He led the league in ERA. He had a 3.02 ERA. He had 21 complete games. For anyone who is a young baseball fan, a complete game is when a pitcher starts the game and finishes the game. He had 21 complete games. He had four uh, shutouts, and those were all league-leading uh, league leading stats, and he threw 262 innings. That was a 40-year-old, and that was after a career of doing things like that every year. All you'd have to do, anybody that's in my position that is involved in baseball should go back and look at how those guys prepared for baseball. And that's what you should be doing with your kids from the time they're in high school till the time they retire in major league baseball. Yeah. I think that's well thought out sound advice. Now you had a, uh, you had a, a happy recruiting story. I think it's happy anyway, based on the tone of your voice. Well, yeah. So, you know, we, we get so tied up and caught up and I had it with my kids and I can't tell you how many people I've dealt with about the recruiting process. And, oh, I can't go to the top school because I'm not getting a look. I'm not good enough. So I'm a big, I'm deeply involved in lacrosse. And I think it's a good example to use in other sports. A lot of ability to go to colleges. The division, the best teams in division two and three are as competitive as a lot of the better teams in division one and are better than I would say the lower part of Division One. So I have a, a really good friend of mine whose son, and there's no reason to mention the school because I don't want to speak badly of a school, but was a starter at a Division One college that was in the last couple of years before, and, and probably even this year, in the bottom five out of all, if not the worst Division One team, probably one of the five worst teams. This kid was a great player for them and was an all-conference selection, was a real good student. He went to the transfer portal, and because of his good grades and that he did still do well individually on a bad team, wound up at Notre Dame and wound up starting. And for any of you who don't know, Notre Dame won the national championship this year. He got there in the spring and had an opportunity to start – I'm sorry, got there in the fall – and had an opportunity to start one of their scrimmages. For all of you, again, not familiar with lacrosse, 
Fall ball is the equivalent of spring football. However, in fall ball in college lacrosse, you are allowed to have games, quote, scrimmages against other colleges. So you've get, you get the chance to really go toe-to-toe with some good programs and get a sense to where you are, especially because maybe you've lost some players, you have young players coming in. So when my friend's son went to Notre Dame, he had a chance to start one of the games, did poorly, and the coach basically said to him, you better get your head on straight. You're not at that other school anymore, and if you want to play, you better get with the program. Long story short, he started every game for Notre Dame this year, won a national championship, and in his senior year, won more games than he won in his four years as a college player and is going to have the opportunity to go back and play another year. So, And at a, at a great university. So there's a lot of lessons there. One, do well in school. Two, work as hard as you can despite your situation. And if you do that, you'll have a very good chance of bettering your situation as you go. And for parents, and if you have an idea for you think your kid should be at a certain school, look at the school that has a plan for your kid and look at a school that's going to have the best, give your kid the best shot to succeed, because then from there, you can still do other things and still get to where you want to be. So I just think that was a great story. I've told that to everybody I know who has kids involved in sports, and they all have a great response to it. It's a it's a good message because, well, for two things. One, that young man was confronted by his coach, and I think that is very hard for kids nowadays, and not because of the kids, but be how they're, because of how they're raised. And when these kids fail out there, parents in the beginning want to start pointing fingers to everybody else but the kid and them. They raised that kid for 18, 19, 20 years, however it is. And I mean, kind of kudos to your friend there for raising his son the right way, where his son heard the message, took it as coaching and not criticism. And responded to it where I mean, we've had, we've had instances and, you know, we, we talk about recruiting all the time, both on and off the air with, with you and I, we've had instances where kids fail. And the first instance of the instinct of the parent is to start muddying the waters around everybody else, other than the fact that your kid didn't go to class, your kid didn't come to work every day, your kid didn't socialize properly. And once the parents brought back to earth and they realized that they got to control the controllables. They raised their child. That coach did not. And it's the responsibility of that kid. Those kids are getting, you know, we tell our kids, you're getting million-dollar scholarships. They're not bringing you in for a million dollars to babysit you. You need to go to class, do your work. And when things don't work out the right way, that's the most important time to stick to the fundamentals and doing the things that you grew up with and doing. Those are the kids that survive, the ones that have those habits where easy to do work when it's well. But your, as your friend's son, it didn't work out well the first game. So what do you do? Do you abandon the habits and the skills that you learned up to that point as a person as player? No, that's when you got to really put your nose down and, and stick to it. And great lesson, I think, for all, all kids out there in, in sports and out of sports. Yeah. And, you know, I've hear, I hear this all the time. Oh, the coach doesn't like me. The coach isn't playing me because I've been around, you know, 30 plus years, coached at high school youth, all three levels of college. Uh, they're, even the worst coaches I've been with have always played the best kids. The kids that don't play, or the and in college it happens more, the kids that don't play or the kids that don't get it done in the classroom. The stories I hear, not only do I know firsthand, but that I hear from other people that are in college, whether it's my kid, whether it's ex-players of mine who have moved on, whether it's some of my clients who play at a high level, the guys who don't pay attention in meeting, don't do things as a good teammate should do, and the other things that sometimes get lost in the sizzle of the sport ability those are the kids that don't play because the the other secret is once you get to that level everybody is pretty much good enough and it's where those intangibles and other things come into play absolutely yeah it's the biggest message that that i hear from you and that that i I try to preach myself is the the coach i don't care if it's youth sports or college sports i've never met a coach that's not in his mind or her mind putting a team out there that they believe gives them the best shot to win. Mm-hmm. And if my kids ever came to me, which they don't, they know better, but, um, and, and I always, I kind of joke with some of the parents when I'm sitting in the crowd, 
not to compare resumes, but my resume in terms of knowledge of the sports can be far greater than the average parent sitting in the stands. And if you see me sitting off to the side, legs crossed, just watching, enjoying my son or daughter play, take that as a cue. That's how you're supposed to act, whether they fail or succeed. Um, you know, if my kids come to me with a problem, which, you know, we talk about stuff, but my message always to them is I'm not your coach. Now you need to go ask your coach. Um, and, and those are conversations that I think parents need to encourage kids to have more of because that that's lacking. The kids, kids can't have a hard time communicating nowadays because one, they're on their devices all the time and they, unless they text it, they don't know how to talk. And two, parents are so fragile. They're out in front of that kid, not letting them communicate. Um, they don't want the right, they don't want the real answer. They want the, as I say, I always had, I, you know, talk to parents throughout our practices. Do you want information or affirmation? If you want information, I'll give it to you. You may not like it. If you want right. affirmation, tell me what you want me to tell you. I'll tell it to you and we can both go on with our day. We don't have to waste time. So, Well, there's a, there's a great account. I mentioned him before. I, I know him from having attended some coaching conferences. He, he's one of the head track coaches at the University of Houston, or he was. He, he works on the performance side in his uh, outside of coaching life. His name is Steve Magnus, M-A-G-N-E-S-S, Steve Magnus on Instagram. And I just had forwarded a post he made about kind of what we're talking about, where he says chasing outcomes is a recipe for disappointment and, and really focusing on the process is really what you want to do. And, and, and in simple terms, how I look at that as you can't talk about winning the conference and being undefeated or being as an individual, being all conference or being all American or getting recruited by X, Y, Z. What they've done is they've looked at goals and goal-oriented people and how they succeed or don't succeed to the extent that they wish they had or they should have. Process goals, they say, have a larger effect on performance than either performance goals or outcome goals. So what we're talking about here is what we're saying, Dave, go to class. Part of the process, especially if you're in college and in high school, is being able to uh, being able to handle all the things your teacher's want from you, plus your coaches want from you, plus what your social social life demands of you. So if you're able to handle those things, there's a better shot of you getting your goal rather than you forgetting that you need to go to history class and take notes and pay attention and get your stuff turned in on, on time, but you're so worried about scoring three goals or scoring four touchdowns or winning the conference that you None of those things happen because you didn't go to class. You didn't make those individual goals. And because you can't do those things, you're certainly not going to reach the the major goal. So I think that's a, a great way to look at things. And it's a great reinforcement of what we've just talked about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Do, do you want to, do you got more on that? Do you want to pop on to some of our, uh, our more, uh, I don't know, health, health conscious topics today? Uh, let's, I think we banged people over the head with that <laughs> stuff. What, what, what would you like? What would you like? You, I, you had a couple of the things. Yeah. I, said, like I like the, you- I like the grains one. Cause I'm a food, I'm always looking at the food I eat, um, you know, for energy, for, you know, just overall health combinations. And, you know, I've, I've tried a number of different ways of eating and I, I like the way you approach it. So you sent me an article on grains, um, that I read. It was, uh, it was 10 grains. Uh, was it? That's 10 reasons it. why grains make you yeah. sick. So I I tend to look at these articles and with at all the articles I look at, I want to see what is what are the, the the data points they use to support their comments, their their uh, their theory, their thesis, their points. So what why I like this and what drove me to this was there was an article and we had spoken about this and I had spoken about this with a friend, the difference between brown and white rice, and there's controversy. I, I really don't care because I don't eat enough of it to ha- that it's going to make a difference. And the reason I don't eat enough of it is because it's really not great for you. But that being said, the USDA in their dairy in their daily dietary recommendations say 50% of our intake should be from whole grains, which is absolutely ridiculous. That's an incredible high percentage of food that basically has very low nutritional value from a density standpoint. In other words, you'd have to eat so much. That's why they're telling you to eat 50% rice, uh, or I'm sorry, 50% of your calories from whole grains, because those 
foods, for the most part, don't carry a lot of nutrients in a dense situation. They, they have a lot of sugar, a lot of carbs. Most of those foods, even whole grains, which are supposed to be so great, will raise your blood sugar as much as table sugar will when you ingest it. So there's just this whole myth around the whole grains. And when that the, the, thing, the key takeaway I gave you in that last little ramble, whole grains, whole, oh, I'm sorry, whole grain bread and oh, some of these oatmeals. And the big thing is steel cut oatmeal, because obviously that's got to be better, better than rolled oatmeal, right, Dave? Because steel cut sounds like, wow, that must be better because it sounds cool. No difference. The, those, those substances raise your blood sugar, which is really the bugaboo of sugar. Sugar itself is a substance. It's what that substance does to your body in your system that's the problem. The increase, the ridiculously high increase in your blood sugar creates an insulin response. And that constant high blood sugar results in a constantly high level of insulin in your system. And over time, it kills your body's ability to produce insulin to bring that blood sugar down so that you're in a, in a healthy state. And that's how we get these type 2 diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetics. That's what type 2 diabetes is. You eat yourself into, into insulin resistance. And then, then you need uh, pharmaceuticals, and that's the, the big Correct. industry nowadays. So, yeah, that's I, I read that because I, I got into a grain kick a little bit when I started running. And... I started eating now. It's funny. I, I think we share the same phrase. I eat when I'm hungry. I sleep when I'm tired. I drink when I'm thirsty. I try to keep it pretty simple. Um, what was the most alarming thing in that article that you read um, outside of what you just said? I know the the, the food pyramid thing. We've been we, we you know we we that's that's misinformation, disinformation, however you want to phrase it. But uh, what else stood out for me from that that article? Well, I, again, I think the thing that's the eye opener is that the whole whole wheat, whole grain bread and the oatmeal is going to raise your blood sugar as high as consuming table sugar. Because people have, I'd say people eating whole grain bread multiple times a day. So you're if you're doing that and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of. um Again, there, and, and, and there's, there's the misconception along with that about the, the, um, the blood sugar. The, the, a lot of the grains have substances in it that causes inflammation throughout your system in different parts of your body, whether it's your digestive tract, whether it's general inflammation. The, the, there's not a lot of real benefits there. I think this is a classic example of how some flawed research, some misapplied results or, or data from some of these studies and a pressure from the industry, food industry results in this lousy food policy. Yeah, just for the audience following along, if, if you're not as into it as we are, you got four kinds of grains. You got cereals, which is corn, millets, barley, oats, rice, uh, wheat. You got pseudo cereals like chia, quinoa, and buckwheat. Those are the things that I got into, the quinoa. You got legumes, um, which is fava beans, soybeans, peanuts, chickpeas, lentils, and oil seeds, which is canola sunflower seed. I get really concerned with this, the oils, flax seed, hemp seed, and poppy seeds. So um, what is, and, and I don't know if you don't know, you know, if you don't want to go too deep into it, but there's, with the thing that I was most into was the whole grains versus refined grains. Cause you know, as you said, the same thing with like oats, they put steel cut oats there and it's like, Ooh, I got to have those. Um, do you, do you, do you want to chat into the differences between those? No, because at the end of the day, that it doesn't matter. It's yeah. the same. It's the same thing. But here, here's a, an instructive point in this whole thing: is if you read these articles and read when they talk about studies, where we're talking about one of the studies they use that said eating whole grains will lower your cholesterol. Yeah. It was a study. The study was actually with forty six people. Right, I read so, that. that. There's no power to that. Forty six people is there, there's nothing to that. That is statistically doesn't have any power. And they'll say that, but they'll still say that that's the classic. They use that. The headline is X, Y, Z lowers your cholesterol. And you look at the study and they say, well, it was a small sample side. So further research is necessary, but you never get further research. Or and, and then the other part of that that was interesting is the USDA funded the study. 
So they have an, there's an agenda there. That's I use the term agenda-driven policy all the time. That is an agenda-driven policy, right? USA, USDA funds the study. The, people, the authors want to have the study published. There's a, in, there's a financial incentive for them to, to come up with a finding that's going to make them look better. Um, there's another one. There's other ways they do these studies. Again, they use a great example in this article. And you see the term, a study, the study suggests, which right there you should just turn off because it's meaningless. There was a study that suggested eating whole grains is associated with lower risk of diabetes in men. Well, we know by questionnaire. Yeah, it's, it's by questionnaire. <laughs> so they asked people to fill out a questionnaire every four years about what they ate over the past 48 months. So that's worthless. That's worthless. So there's no, and, and they have the ability to put people in a lab, feed them over a short term and get specific responses from them. And not, maybe not in the, obviously in the lifetime picture, but they know eating those substances raises blood sugar. And that's why they have the glycemic index, which will tell you, um, that's why when you look at it, whole wheat, bread, whole grain bread, and oatmeal, their glycemic index is right up there with table sugar. Yeah, that's a, that, and that's a, outside of the information in the study. I think that's a point that we make often with our audience. Even with stuff we say, you got to do your own research. You got to question. You got to listen to the words that you're saying that, much like we said with pitching, there's certain cues that you got to look at when they say it to, to read a little bit deeper into the, the studies and the suggestions for that. Well, let's hit on the, unless you got a, more things that let's hit on the, there was a, a article you sent on child obesity. Wait, child obesity. No, I sent the one about the, um, the abscesses in the brain. Oh, the brain. I'm sorry. So the, the, right. uh, I was looking at the other we one. I was talking about childhood obesity too, because that goes, that goes hand in glove with these USDA recommendations and, the drinking of Gatorade and juices that tell you to fruit juice. That's why we have childhood obesity as well. It's the high fructose corn syrup and everything. But there was the, the real troubling, the troubling story is this abnormal surge of brain abscesses in American children. This is coming from the CDC. And it's amazing how these organizations come to the conclusions that they come to with no sense of awareness of what, what it is they're saying. There's not one mention. That, so they're trying to say that the abscesses usually follow a respiratory infection, usually COVID-19, the flu, or sinusitis. Well, this is a recent problem. We had a peak of these problems in December 20, of 2022 of 102 cases, and then cases have fallen, but have remained over the baseline, which was a maximum of 61 cases per month. So we've got close to a doubling, you know, 40% increase in these cases. Uh, Dave, what other reason could you think would be, what else happened in that period where we had COVID, where really no one died, no kids died from COVID, no healthy kids died from COVID. If there's anyone pushing that, uh, again, another person or group to be ignored. What else was going on during the time kids got COVID? What else were they getting during that period? Well, you know, you, you take a look at the the injections. Uh, you yeah. Look at the masks. You take a look at well, what was the injection? What, what what were the injections kids were getting? Uh, for the for the COVID, is that what you're talking about? They were getting vaccines, weren't vaccines, they? Yeah. Oh, so the vaccines were being given during this period. So kids didn't die from COVID. We know kids died from the vaccine. We, we know more kids died from the vaccine, more healthy kids died from the vaccine than died from COVID. So now we have this unusual condition of brain abscesses in children under 18. At the same time, we have deaths of kids in that group from the vaccines. But nowhere in this article is there a hint that it could be the vaccines that caused it. It's the fact that kids were not vaccinated, maybe, and had COVID, and that's what get, led to these brain abscesses. Despite the fact that during the same period, when the abscesses 
increased, the cases of COVID were going down. Yeah. I found that the, the well, two things I found odd right away. I kind of read with a critical eye like you do. Um, obviously, the CDC was was behind the article and had some major quotes in there. Uh, that was flag number one. Two was that they suggested that there could be a link between the brain abscesses and the lifting of the mask mandates, which, again, goes back to the, I love the, the website I would imagine they go to is www.imright.com to uh to prove their points but so it looks like that that was one of the things they blamed it on so if they had kept the masks on longer the brain abscesses would not have come to to fruition again again there's a case of that that's not gaslighting that is bold bold is it bold face or bold face i was never clear on that lying that's absolutely lying there's been real studies done that show the masks don't have any impact if anything the masks make things worse they again, not once in this article. This article, I'm surprised this article hasn't mentioned going to church or doing other things as being responsible for the rise in brain abscesses because they seem to entertain a lot of other ridiculous things without even bringing into it the fact that these kids were given COVID vaccines. And again, I think it's interesting to keep repeating. I don't think most people realize this. No healthy kid died from COVID. Healthy kids died from the vaccine. So I just think people need to keep that in mind. No, I think points well taken. And, and again, we always encourage people to, you know, read, read with a critical eye, approach us with a critical eye. Um, but that, that's an interesting article. We can put a link to that on our, on our Facebook posts and Instagram posts as well. Uh, you had just- so quickly, I just not to get too much of an aside, but are you familiar there's a CIA program that was called Operation Mockingbird. Are yeah. you familiar with that? Ma'am. That is where the CIA had plants in the media that would publish stories favorable or whether whether they were favorable or not, they were stories that the CIA CIA wanted out there, whether it was about Vietnam, whether it was about social problems, some st- stuff at home. And there's very well known journalists in quotes that were part of this, whether it was TV, radio, print, anything. They had this program. There's no denying it. It's uh, it's a, it's a, a well-known program. We have a similar situation today. We, we've heard it through the political season where certain people on Twitter and on the networks were basically mouthpieces for whether it was the NSA, whether it was the CIA, whether it was the FBI, whatever governmental agency you want. We have the same thing now. We have these websites and writers at other outlets that are plants or dupes of these organizations, whether it's the CDC or other groups. And that's where this a lot of this information is coming from. This is nothing other than a PR attempt or a PR operation. So people have to keep that in mind. That, that this has been done now for at least 50 years. Yeah, I think your articles today are obviously clear examples of that as well. And we see, we see that and people don't, don't, uh, don't discard that mockingbird from baseball too. Um, we're, we're seeing that in, that in that realm as well. So what, what about Ozempic butt? What is that? Oh, again, that's, uh, so people lose a lot of weight and their skin sags. Gee, isn't that, that's a, that's a real syndrome, isn't it? I mean, that's what happens when people lose weight quickly, unfortunately. Why is that? What, what, what have we been banging on people to eat, even if they're trying to lose weight? Protein. Protein always. Yep. And if people, and they do say it, you know, semi, the, the art, it's article says it, that the drug doesn't directly cause loose skin, nor will everyone who uses this drug experience it. But rapid weight loss can contribute to saggier skin for some. The, the stupidity that is involved with having to write this, maybe it's a function of they need stuff, they need content, and they just throw stuff out there and it gets clicks by coming up with Ozempic. But it, 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 it's no different than you go on any other diet and lose too much weight the wrong way and you lose muscle instead of fat. That's exactly why that happens to you. That's why you get... Why people get saggy faces when they lose weight, your, mu- your body doesn't choose where 
the muscle gets taken from. It kind of does it democratically, to use probably an, an, an inaccurate phrase, but it sounds good. It's a democratic system. You lose muscle all over. So you have the smallest muscles are in your face. The biggest muscles are your butt, your lower body, your back, your lats, that stuff. So when someone loses a lot of weight first, it usually is noticeable in the face. And then if you lose too much weight, you get a saggy face because those are small muscles there. And it's very hard to get those back. So that's that's the mechanism that's at work here. So I, I think people need to understand that, which, again, why it, it just reinforces why you need to eat protein. Yeah, I like that. And I've had John for 45 now. Do you want to tap into the article on marijuana, how its users tend to be leaner and less likely to develop diabetes? Let's uh, let's well, let's tease that. We'll we'll talk about it a little more. But what what I will say is that's a great example of taking findings that sound positive and putting. I'm sorry that yeah that sound positive when really it's negative. And if you look at the rest of that article, there's a lot of other problems that come from those supposed positive side effects. So uh, the 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 research on marijuana use has been out and it's been around and it's not positive as it's been universally portrayed to be. So it's just another one of these things we need to be aware of. But we'll get into that a little bit more next week because it's 46 minutes and change. And I and I think people might get a little fatigued. Oh, you gave him a lot of good stuff today. Yeah, that's when I first read the title, I was I was surprised it was inputted into the show until I pulled up the article and realized that it wasn't the uh, here's here's reasons why you should do marijuana. But uh, no, I, th- I, I, I like the, the topics today, certainly made the audience smarter today. We've got a very, I think, a very intellectual audience. They crave this type of stuff. And uh, I thought you brought it again today. What do you want to leave the audience with today? Uh, get outside. I did a, a little, one of my last Instagram posts, uh, get outside, take your shoes off, work out in bare feet. Don't just do jumping jacks or lift weights standing outside. Get out and do some of your running, do running, do shuffle, do some agility work. Get on a nice grass field. Make sure it's it's clear of debris. Work your feet. That's going to be the best thing for you. Yeah. I've been searching out and I've been using Instagram to do this. I think it's a lot better than Facebook. I've been following your lead and even following some of the people that follow you and comment on your stuff. But I've been searching out ankle and foot mobility stuff for myself because I've started running and doing ultra marathons. And that goes back to our very first show way, way back when, when you showed that uh, the uh, the military, how they used to squat to, to, uh, to shoot the rifle. Um, but I've enjoyed those. And since I've been doing ankle and foot mobility, the rest of my body from the bottom up has felt better from calves to Achilles to to quads to hamstrings. It's amazing how that loosened a ton of stuff up already. I think I'm taller even so, to be honest with you. Well, that's that's a great uh, endorsement. Again, what's the only thing that's on the ground when you're moving is your foot. So if you're not functional in that ankle and foot, it's going to cause problems. And with all the running you do, Dave, I know you're, you've been an ultra marathoner. Every step magnifies the, through the chain, the, the problems. And when you run, it's a minimum of three times your body weight in ground reaction force every time with every foot strike. So, you know, even someone who's a, a, the average jogger, you could take, you know, 130, 140, 150 strides in, in a minute and multiply that by your body weight by three. So say 150 times your body weight times three, and that's the ground reaction force your body is experiencing with every stride. So that is a massive amount of force your body is dealing with. So Dave, what's do you feel like telling us how much you weigh these days? Oh yeah, I'm probably 165. Well, 165, let's say you're, you're relatively efficient. Let's give you a low... 130, that's uh, 165 times three. So with every stride you take, Dave, that's, let's, it's 495, but let's say it's 500 pounds in your ground reaction force. And if you multiply that by 130 strides in a minute, that's 64,000 pounds. 
over 64,000 pounds of ground reaction force. And even if you go for a nice 20 minute run, which probably doesn't even get you sweating, that's over one and a quarter million pounds. That's one million two hundred and eighty seven million pounds of ground reaction force that your body is contending with. So if your ankle's not working properly, that force has to be distributed in a way that's not advantageous to your body through means that aren't always uh, that don't always wind up good. So uh, think about all these athletes we're talking about, Dave, who have poor athlete, uh, poor ankle range, all the running they're doing on top of other things they need to do while they're running, rotating, getting hit, changing direction, decelerating all the forces on the body. When the one thing that's on the ground determining how well you move doesn't work properly. Yeah. No, I've taken uh, great interest in that and feet, ankles, hips, um, you know, anywhere from, and then I do uh so the piriformis and then transverse abdominis from the hips all the way up to the, to the upper body there. And it's, it's really helped me out with posture. I've got a little bit of a sway back, so it's not, that's great for jumping, but not so great for uh, distance running sometimes. So my lower back hasn't been bothering me at all with, with the feet stuff. So I attribute that to uh, Dr. Sal. And, and just so you, let's put some context in that, what that weight of the ground reaction force is. So we said that was 1,270,000 or 280,000 pounds. Uh, the empty, an empty 767 Boeing aircraft weighs 190,000 pounds. Yeah. So you're, you're putting the weight of a 767 on your body. Now you're not carrying that, but that's the ground reaction force is equal to, is more poundage than what a 767 weighs for a basic 20 minute run. And by the way, Dave, the worse you run, the lack. Uh, the the less efficiency you have in your stride, that number goes up. Yeah, and that's why I get careful with my posture with that. The uh, and I encourage people if you want to go on my Instagram with Real Voices of the Game. If you can't, I don't know how it works on there with following. I may have it blocked off, but just uh, follow me or put a request in, and I'll, I'll accept it. And then you can kind of look at some of the people that I'm using: feet, ankles, knees, uh, hip mobility, all that stuff's been great. I'm 50, uh, former professional athlete. But, uh, you know, running, uh, running 100.3 miles puts a little, little, uh, pardon the pun, mileage on your body when you're doing it. So the stuff that you've given Sal's helped out a ton with me um, and, you know, without even trying. So I appreciate that. Well, I'll let the, let the audience get going here. Soak up all of the information we gave him today. A ton of great stuff. Episode 200 here, the hot corner with Coach Sal, thanking our 18,800 subscribers. Catch up with Sal on Instagram. He gets a lot of great content up there. You can hit, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, any of our hosts for that matter. Uh, follow us, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher as the streaming devices. Make sure you download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review so we can battle those podcast analytics like we do in baseball. 72 countries now, so you're global if you weren't before. Grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. Just trying to build better baseball IQ, better health IQ, better life IQ. And as our audience reminds me, Uh, They prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truths with our show because this program, like all the others, have no time for the comfortable lies. Sal, thanks so much for another great episode. Thanks, Dave. Talk to you next week.